Hey friends, in our podcast today, we're going to deal with a very important question of what is genuine faith? You know, Bonhoeffer said that the problem with the church in Germany during the rise of the Nazis was that their faith was deficient. The, the robust, powerful faith of Martin Luther, the faith that was willing to stand for truth at all costs, had become almost like a, a, a creedal faith or a statement of faith where people basically assented to a certain uh, theological uh, stance and said, well, we, we, we have faith. Uh, but that wasn't the faith that leads to works, righteousness, uh, sanctification, holiness, a faith that has the courage to stand. And so we're going to look at what is faith and, and what is the faith that's necessary to be the church of Jesus Christ in these perilous times in which we're living in. You will not want to miss this podcast. We hope you'll join us. Welcome to the Ron Johnson Discipleship Podcast. Where we're still smiling in a world of increasing insanity and craziness because we know the truth and we know the answer and we know Jesus. And there is something about a, uh, a biblical worldview, as I said, that provides a mental map mm. that helps you navigate the uh, chaos of life. And certainly chaos is not new. Uh, chaos has been around for a long time, ever since the fall. Um, but a, a mental map that's rooted in the scriptures, rooted in the uh, story of Christ's redemption, uh, gives us at least a sense of peace and direction and confidence. Even if we don't know all the answers about what's going on, we know where things are headed and we, we know the one who does. So uh, as we're broadcasting this podcast, uh, lots of things still happening. Of course, chaos in the Middle East, uh, chaos in the Congress. As we're still trying to get uh, a speaker. No, no speaker yet, huh? No speaker. Um, and um, it just seems, again, like people are, uh, are are divided over things that, I guess in my mind, things that at this point in the history of our nation and how precarious things are and the, literally the powder keg that's, that's called the Middle East, how desperately we need American leadership. And when you have a Congress that's comp- completely neutralized and out of business, uh, it doesn't seem to me to be the time to be nitpicking about, you know, I saw where, where one of the uh, uh, Republican leaders did not vote for um, Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan, thank you, uh, because Jim Jordan believes the election was stolen. And I, I, was, I was sitting there going, who with a brain cell doesn't believe that the election was stolen? <laughs> I mean, come on. It's just amazing to me that... that uh, uh, for just questioning, uh, which is something the Democrats do after every election as well. You know, just questioning uh, your view to somehow unfit to lead. Uh, anyway, the, right. the larger problem is we have a, a Congress with no leadership and can't do anything. And, and that's not a good mix for what's going on right now. Right. There's no central creed, central value that at least is seemingly the right is embracing. It's 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 very utilitarianism at that point. Yeah. Whereas I feel like the left has some type of value, <laughs> whatever value it is, that's at least uniting the rank and file so that they are, you know, taking orders. You yeah. Know? No, you're right. There, that, that that seems to be the the bane of uh, of Republican politics is that uh, we get splintered in a million different groups and can't get anything done, and then you got those on the left who. Who hate our values and hate what we stand for? Who who are unified seemingly in uh, most everything that they do? So yeah. Uh, anyway, I guess I, I guess that's what matters when, when truth matters and principle matter. I guess that lends itself to to more splintering in general. And I'm hoping this sorting process opened up to see us to see who really is aligned with the truth. 
who is aligned with the values that, you know, I guess most America, I believe most Americans still care about, you know, the, having a tr- the truth, you know, uh, having a limited government, you know, freedom, you know, th- these are these are cent- cent- uh, central. Va- oh, how about how about elitists should not oppress the people and, and centralize their wealth and control yeah. that uh, they're supposed to serve our people and not, you know, just tell us what to do through tyranny yep. and, and, and dictates. But um, hopefully their true color will be exposed in this process. You know, there's chaos all over the world and things are stirring, That's yep. to say the least, right? It's stirring Absolutely. overseas, Absolutely. stirring in America. And, and I, I don't think we know the half of it. That's the other point, you know, uh, just uh, we, we only get what we're fed on, on news That's media. the other thing, right. Uh, so you're, really trying to find, yeah, you're trying to find real truth and real answers <laughs> and, and facts, facts. So uh, it is a time to be on our knees praying for Israel, praying for the nations, praying for revival, praying for our own country. And, um, and again, we still have Americans abroad that, that uh, need to be released. Uh, and so anyway, a lot, a lot, a lot to pray for. Um, just to bring us up to speed on where we've been with this podcast, we're working through uh, Eric Metaxas's book called... Uh, Letters to the American Church. Oh, good job. <laughs> I was hoping you'd be able to pull that out because I was going blank. And uh, But it's a great book. Trust us on that one. Uh, we've been getting a lot of feedback on this. But the last chapter was a powerful chapter just to bring our listeners up to speed. It was t- called uh, talking about the spiral of silence. Unpackage that for us before we get into the problems uh, that Metaxas is concerned about that, that were found in the church in Germany at the time, and that he's concerned are in our culture today, in the church world yeah, today. Yeah, I think the spiral silence is the best way for me to remember, understand it, is like the, 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 the king with the emperor with no clothes on. Okay, He walks around naked, basically, but everyone's supposed to think... Everyone's gaslighted. He, he thinks he has clothes he, on. Yeah, yeah, he thinks he has clothes on, and and everyone's gaslighted to, to to act like he has clothes on. So no one says anything, and the cost of not saying becomes higher and higher and higher because all these dignitaries are not saying anything. If I say something, I'm gonna get in trouble until right. inevitably a child, you know, speaks the truth because they didn't care about the stakes, right? Yep. So and the, yeah, go ahead. In the world of economics, it's the law of supply and demand. So if if everybody's standing up and speaking out, uh, the cost of that is smaller. If, if in a highly volatile culture, uh, you're the only person speaking out, then you become the, f- the focal point of attack, yeah. and and you pay the greatest price. And of course, in Nazi Germany, it meant that you paid the price with your life. So, uh, but it, but the, his whole contention was, if those twelve thousand pastors, the mushy middle, would have stood up and joined the three thousand. Uh, you know, confessing church pastors that did speak out, that would have been a 15,000 congregations, and, and that could have made a significant impact on the outcome of what we know now to be, you know, World War II. Um, so anyway, and the Holocaust and all the lives that were lost. Um, but Metaxas brings out some points that we're going to talk about in the next few podcasts as to why, what was going on theologically? And he says that there's some bad theology behind this mushy middle of the church simply not speaking out. And he points out in his book uh, that, you know, history is a, is a uh, pendulum swing uh, of extremes. You know, you deal with one extreme for a while, a church that's maybe way over on this side, and then the next revival in the church or reformation pushes the pendulum to the other side. And usually it's very hard to, to land in the middle because we're reactionary. Yeah, we're human beings. We're human beings, yeah. and we're like, oh, that's wrong. And so we swing all the way back over you know, to the other side. And so 
he's basically saying that the church that Luther helped to birth was a church that was reacting to the Catholic Church at the time, emphasis, overemphasis on salvation by works. The emphasis was on good deeds, um, uh, almost a works righteousness that, you know, on the great balance, if, you, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you know, you're going to be okay. And, and again, uh, such a, a, a little emphasis or, or not enough emphasis on what, the, of course, the scriptures teach about salvation through faith and, and faith alone, uh, which was Luther's emphasis. And so the, the Reformation restored the truth of justification by faith and um this kind of gets back. It's interesting. We don't have time to get into it, but uh, in Luther's early days, you know, he was he was almost uh, killed by a lightning strike, and he he told the Lord, you know, if if he survives, uh, that that he would basically go into full time service, and that's exactly what happened. He he went into you know become a monk, and he was so infatuated, so focused uh, on perfection, almost you know perfection in his heart, holiness. But it was a holiness that was not rooted in what Christ had done. It was a holiness that was rooted in his ability to perform. And he just lived in constant fear. You know, kind of like if I go to bed at night and I would die tonight with any unconfessed sin, I would be thrown into hell forever. I mean, yeah. it was a terrible, tormenting, bad theology that he had uh, that led him to just, you know, constantly be introspective and focusing on his thoughts and his activities and why he did this and constant time spent with confessing of every, you know, nuanced little detail of his life. And really it led to torment. Um, and, and so as he's studying the scriptures, of course, he comes across the famous passage from Romans chapter one, verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written. And here's the famous line, you know, the righteous shall live by faith. That was a an explosive revelation that led to the entire reforming of the church and the, the birth of uh, Protestantism, um, this whole idea that righteousness comes by faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, he quotes uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith... We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. So this this was like liberating truth, of course, to all of us, but to apply it to Martin Luther, the peace that comes from knowing that you're right with God, uh, not because of what you're doing, but because of what Jesus has done. I mean, for a monk who's you know literally beating himself up with uh, questions about his own worthiness to somehow stand before a holy God... Yeah. Uh, and to realize that it's not on his doing or on his performance, but it's on Jesus' perfect performance. This is is the good news. And this brings peace to your mind, uh, knowing again that it's not my performance, but Christ's perfect righteousness that that sets me free. Uh, Again, I'm just quoting some scripture here because this was all scripture that was recovered and then seemingly had been lost uh, in in Luther's day. Galatians 2.16 Uh, Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And uh, and we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Um, Romans 3.28, and this was the verse that I found interesting as you and I were talking about this. 
Uh, It says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, Luther had such a crazy revelation of this and such a liberating revelation of this truth that when he translated uh, the Greek New Testament into German, and on Romans 3.28, he took the liberty to add the word alone mm-hmm. into that. So by faith alone. And so the whole mantra, you know, and battle cry of the Reformation was, was faith alone. Mm-hmm. But that's not what the scripture said. It's not faith alone. It's me- meaning that your lifestyle, your works, your, your behaviors, your obedience is not important. Um, and that's why Luther had such a problem with... The, the epistle of James, which he called an epistle <laughs> of straw, because when he got to James, yeah. it was like James was saying just the opposite of this incredible revelation that, that it was new for him, this this idea of justification yeah. by faith. Um, so so let's talk about that. Um, how's, what's the balance here? Because again, what, what Metaxas is saying is that the church in Luther's day had completely swung to this idea that all we need is faith. All that matters is faith. And and we would argue at one level, well, that's true, isn't it? But it, it all gets back to what is your definition of faith? Right. Um, and what Metaxas would say was that during Luther's day, the church had a statement of faith view of faith. Mm-hmm. Like, we believe in all the creeds, our doctrine is proper, here's our statement of you know good Lutheranism, this is what good Lutherans believe. How many of you guys believe that? Oh, the whole nation raises their hand. We're all good Lutherans. We all believe. We all have faith. What, what from Metaxas' perspective, how would he say their faith was defective, I guess? Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, James, in the, the famous verses, no faith without works is dead. Is dead. Right. Yep. And, and Metaxas actually used an uh, example, which I'm thinking of stealing from my sermon in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Of of the difference between hey, what he calls I won't tell anybody. You won't tell anybody. Don't tell watching, anybody. Anybody yeah. who's watching this podcast will yeah. know. Oh, Andrew gave us. <laughs> I stole that from the taxes. <laughs> but um, um, but what he will call the difference between believing and trusting. Yeah. And the example he gave basically is a a a uh, high wire. Um, what, what do you call that? Artist. Trapeze, Trapeze artist, yeah. artist. Who who you know who's walking between two. T- Two high buildings or two, you know, tower ranges or something, round ranges, whatever it is. And everyone's watching, and he's going back and forth. He's like, and everyone's like, "We believe you. You're so great." He's like, "Do you guys believe I can do a wheelbarrow carrying heavy load back and forth?" And everyone's like, "We believe you." And then, and he calls one guy. He's like, "Well, why don't you step in the wheelbarrow and let me demonstrate with you? Demonstrate, basically demonstrate your faith. You say you believe. Now trust me." And I thought that's such a great illustration between this. Theological belief, right? uh, uh, Ethereal, ideological belief, and that practical application. I think that's what James was saying: is faith without the application into what you do is really no faith at all. Yep, and and that's a famous illustration, as you said, a good illustration because we can all stand in the crowd and watch the guy traverse back and forth on on the uh, on the tightrope, knowing that there's no support, no net. He's just simply, you know, performing this incredible yeah. balancing act, and then to see him do it with a wheelbarrow and go, "Wow, he can do it!" But it's a whole other thing when you're going to put yourself in the wheelbarrow and let him do it with you. And I think, you know, that's a powerful illustration of faith because we we can all say, "Oh yeah, we believe Jesus," blah 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 mm-hmm. blah. 
But how do you apply that in your own life? And how do you apply that where the rubber meets the road? I deal with this all the time working with business owners, right? Because people say, I believe my business belongs to God. Okay, it's a, it's a powerful and it's a fun thing to say, yeah. right? A, a nice thesis. <laughs> nice thesis, <laughs> theoretical idea, right? But practically, that means you have to maybe change your finances. You may need to pay your people a little bit more. Maybe you need to pay your people a little bit less. Maybe you need to fire some people. Ah. Maybe you need to hire some people, right? Maybe you need to pray more before you, you make decisions. Right? You need to actually pause and ask God before you make decisions. So that's where the rubber meets the road. And, and I think it's a beautiful picture when James says, again, what James would say to the guy who says, I believe in you. You can walk between those uh, on the high wire. Everything be fine. Well, come join me. Uh, you know what? I actually don't believe in you. And I think that's a clarity sometimes yeah. we need to be exposed. Because what Metaxas and what what uh, uh, Bonhoeffer would have said yeah. was that your faith is is demonstrated and exposed by what you actually do, what you do right. not by what you say. And this goes back to James again. Maybe it bears a moment for us to read this. This is James 2.18 and following. But someone will say... Uh, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Mm. You, Here's the part I wanted to highlight. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Um, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham your father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And so this is a powerful point because what, what he's saying is, you know, even the demons in hell have some belief in the truth or the veracity of who God is. In other words, it, James is saying, so what if you believe? Even the demons believe. What separates our faith, genuine faith, from the faith that demons have? Yeah. Or what separates our faith from the faith of Abraham? who, when God said, all right, uh, give me your son, uh, your only son, and Abraham obeyed and believed, and it was accounted unto him righteousness. That's probably um, the, the, the prototypical example, because he's the father of faith. Yeah, yeah. That's the prototypical example of what our faith should look like, that you are literally taking your most precious and you're offering to God because you believe. I, I, I like the word trust. We've been talking in the series right, of trust, right? right? And I was listening to a different book that talks about how trust needs to be extended. It's a proactive act. Believe is almost seeing like, oh, yeah, I believe that there's oxygen in this room. I believe in one plus one. sounds like it could be passive. Passive, right? Just a mental activity. Right. It all goes back to your definition. But but in this case, trust is like, I entrust you with my, I I, I offer that to you. Like, God, I'm going to give you my trust. It's not a passive act. It's actually a daring, proactive act. That's good. That's what faith should look like. So he goes back, you know, again, back to to Metaxas and his analysis of the the German church under Bonhoeffer. He said they had pretty much not, not that full... You know, rounded out faith that says, I, I love you, Lord, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I trust you with my very life. Mm. A faith that leads you to action. But the faith that they had was a fig leaf kind of faith. And he goes back to, to the garden, you know, when, when really we have our first act of religion. Mm-hmm. 
what is religion? It's human beings trying to approach God on their own terms, human beings trying to be righteous apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Yep. And so when Adam and Eve sin, what do they do? They, they realize, uh-oh, we're in trouble, and uh, they try to cover themselves, cover the shame, cover the guilt with you know uh, their own resources, all right? And this, and this says it leaves, you know. Uh, but it was a picture, again, of religion and what religion tries to do. And so uh, Bonhoeffer was saying that the German church is basically trying to cover themselves with their own form of righteousness. Uh, it was religion. It, it, it was it was statement of faith, uh, website, here's our, here's our uh, statement of belief, here's our creeds that we support. But at the end of the day, there was, it was hollow. There was nothing behind it. There was right. no heart. There was certainly no soul. There was no, there was no works. In other words, why didn't the church stand up? Because we had simply a mental ascent, really kind of demonic faith, a faith that's on the level of the demons, right. a faith that believes that God is real, a faith that believes Jesus is Savior, but not a faith that reaches out and, and wraps your heart around it and changes your life and changes the way that you live. The statement of faith, when he, he was talking about how a lot of these churches have a statement of faith, and basically when people challenge their faith, they right. say, hey, go read our website. Well, I don't have a website right. back then. Go read our statement of faith. Here's the document. That That is so familiar to us right now in our culture we are today. I mean, I'm not even just talking about churches who, who says, hey, here's our statement of faith. We believe marriage between a man and a woman. Well, why aren't you speaking out about this issue? Well, we don't need to because it's our statement of faith, you know, to to businesses who have... Like, no, let, let's just pause right because okay. you bring out a great point. How many churches theologically would say, we believe that marriage is between a man and a woman? Mm-hmm. And then just what you said, but how many of them lifted one finger to support marriage when marriage was under attack. Right. Um, that's exactly what we're talking about. How many churches believe in the sanctity of life? Raise your hand. Yep. And yet how many churches have lifted one finger to actually show up at an abortion mill uh, to witness, to protest, to get somebody elected that's going to do something about it? To you know, We, we, we have no problem doing the... the uh, acts of kindness side of things. Like, we'll, we'll bring diapers in, and we'll, you know, and that's all necessary. We'll, we'll do whatever we can to support, a, say, a single mom who keeps her baby. But that's dealing with the, the tragic results down the road again. Yeah. It's not dealing with stopping the problem, because stopping the problem does have a political side to it. Uh, and so we don't mind handing, you know, a diaper, set pack of diapers to the mama who's going to keep her baby, but what have we done to stop that from happening in the first place, or to put these abortion clinics out of business because they're evil. Um, that's what we're talking about. The, this is where the rubber meets the road. And yet many churches would say, well, we believe the right thing, but when it comes to what how that faith is expressed, it's deficient. And I will add that this is not just a church problem. This is the Human problem. problem. This is an organizational problem. I, how many businesses says, you know, our top highest priority is our employees. Yep. And then you talk to the employees, they're like, no, our highest priority is profit. <laughs> you know, and, and and there's blind spots sometimes, but I think it lends to what Metax is saying is there's the theology, there's a ideology, this culture of which we can be disconnected and that's okay. 
because of this underlying sense of like, I just need faith to be saved. I just need to make sure I say the right things. And what I actually do, I mean, it, it, it lends to a, a culture of hypocrisy. Right. Right. And that's okay. And he talks about it. He addressed that directly. A Pharisee kind of uh, faith. Well, I, I want to actually address that point real interesting because... The Pharisees, my understanding, is itself a a overcorrection from the exile because the Jews were were worshiping idols. They were doing all breaking all kind of laws. So the Pharisees swung the opposite direction to right. major we're going legalism. To make, right, make a bunch of laws to keep you from breaking Bring the, the law. laws God gave us. Right, and look at how Jesus reacted to that because they they made an idol of the laws themselves. Right, and now there's another swing all the way from from this legalistic like you're only saved if you perform 14 other indulgences and say all these different things, whatever right. it is this right. legalistic side to the sense of you don't have to do anything you just need to say it and believe by faith so this is human nature one pendulum to a different one and let's learn from that, these 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 historical things right right exactly so again this idea that we re- reduced our faith to mental assent god knows what we truly believe so he you know we're good but as he points out god knows what we truly believe not by what we say we believe but by looking at our lives in other words your the way you live your life is the best theology uh and he was saying the creeds and uh Bonhoeffer's day had become fig leaves uh, simply to cover up and to keep us back from speaking out, from acting, uh, from being the prophetic church that God's called us to, to be. And he really challenged Bonhoeffer, that is, challenged the church to return to their first love. Um, and the second point he brings out is this major uh, headline in his book of the church paralyzed. I think it was chapter eight. Faith alone had made the Christian faith so simple that nearly everyone claimed to believe. In other words, so this whole idea that just have faith. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Oh, I believe in Jesus Christ. But it was such a shallow, watered-down understanding of what that actually means that if, if, it's, if it's so shallow that everybody can have a mental assent to it, then you really have no genuine faith, and there's no church. There's no, like, who is the church? Everyone's the church. Um, and you have no mobilized army that's really accomplishing anything. It's a church that's paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And so um, he talks about placing our full trust in Christ as Savior, uh, the whole idea of a wholehearted, passionate devotion to Christ as compared to this just hollow mental theological ascent. We believe the right things, but our hearts, as, as Jesus said, you, you uh, confess your love for me, but your hearts are so far from me. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about cheap grace, because Bonhoeffer wrote uh, his book uh, and, and, uh, on discipleship and talked about this concept of cheap grace, and he basically said cheap grace is not grace at all. And I've got a famous quote here. Cheap grace is the idea that grace did it all for me, so I don't need to change my lifestyle. The believer who accepts the idea of cheap grace thinks he can continue to live like the rest of the world. Instead of following Christ in a radical way, the Christian lost in cheap grace thinks he can simply enjoy the consolations of his grace. In other words, just believe in Jesus and then just get on living your life the way that you always have. So let's talk about that. Cheap grace is the idea that grace did it all, so I don't need to change. Um, We find this in our American church today. It is a hyper grace. It's a grace that says, you know, my righteousness is in Christ, therefore it really doesn't matter how I live, because there's always going to be a steady flow of grace to cover my sin 
and it's all about Jesus anyway. It's almost like you know the, the, what Paul had to address in his day. You know, shall I continue to sin yeah. so that grace can abound? Right. Like I'm actually helping grace because right. the more the more evil I am and the more wicked and right. vile sinner I am, the right. more it highlights the gra- the grace of God. But it but it's a demonic perversion because. It's the grace of God that gives us the power to live differently and expects us to live differently. I think what the fear stirred in me, well, I don't know if fear is the right word, the, the, the caution. caution is when he's like, cheap grace is actually a misnomer. Because when we hear cheap grace, we think it's maybe a lower tier of grace. But the truth is, it's actually worse than, than what you have in the first place. It's, it's no grace at all. It's actually worse than truly a low cheap grace because it's actually a deception yeah i mean i just use an example from the marketplace if a company says we care about our customers more than anyone else and then you found out actually the truth is they are openly deceptive either to themselves or to each other whatever but they really care about profit i rather that company never have that statement at all because then they can be aware of their deficiencies than to have that statement up there and say, hey, and when they get challenged, right? When you say, hey, you know what? You need Jesus. Hey, you need to worry about your customers. They said, no, 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 no. We're good. We're good. You see that? You see yeah. that vision statement? It becomes an insulation to keep us from experiencing the true grace and the true redemptive love of Jesus. So it's actually worse right. than to not have any of this at all. Right. It's like the whole the whole faith without works thing. They go hand in glove. How do you know your faith is real? Because there's been a, a supernatural transformation in your heart that, that happens when you, genu- and you, you demonstrate genuine faith in Christ. Yeah. And it's that inward transformation that absolutely goes hand in glove with your outward lifestyle. So in other words, the person with genuine faith has a radical lifestyle change that demonstrates the reality of their faith. It, it, the, the lifestyle change doesn't save you. The lifestyle change is the proof that what you had happen on the inside is genuine. It's the same thing with grace. When you receive the grace of God, the grace of God gives you the power to hate sin and to love righteousness. To do what's right. To, yeah. you, you, want to, you want to please the Lord. You want to live in a way that honors God. You want your life to, uh, to make a difference. You want to count. It's the grace of God that has produced all those, desi- those new desires that are manifested in the way that you live. So you can't just say, well, I'm a Christian. God knows my heart. No, uh, your your heart is actually being demonstrated every day by the choices that you make and by the things that you love and the passions that you have. Right. Have you been transformed or not? So our our change of lifestyle should actually confirm that we're truly born again. We're using a lot of theological terms, but I remember remember Jesus' very words. That brings it down. I mean, what a guy, man. He brings it down to the most simple <laughs> phrase. You shall know the tree by its fruits. I mean, that's it. Yep. You want to know if this is the legitimate tree, apple tree? Go look at its fruit. Does Are it there apples apple? on Are there tree? apples on there? <laughs> and I mean, anybody can, any kid can understand that concept, right? And, and But when you keep saying you're a Christian, but you keep doing things that's against the Bible, you're, and you keep telling me I'm wrong because I'm judging you, you're gaslighting me, right? Yep. You're telling me, I'm like, with my eyes, I don't see you're doing any of the things the Bible say, but you keep telling me you're a Christian. I guess I'm the crazy one. Yep. But Jesus talked about that by saying the truth that the tree shall be known by its fruits. It's so simple. So, I, and you're exactly right. And, and Jesus, the expert teacher, right, right, nails it with such a an economy of words. <laughs> yeah. But well, let's bring it back, to, I guess, to yeah. to the Nazi problem. Yeah. We have a silent church, 
And I think Bonhoeffer would argue that much of the silence is because it is a church in name only and morally at the core of the church, there's corruption and there's compromise and there's sin. The church cannot have a prophetic voice if we are are living in the same sin that our neighbors are living in, if we're mired in the same you know, uh, corruption that, that the larger world is mired in. You lose your prophetic voice, and, and that's why there has to be the call to repent, to return to your first love, to return to a passionate, radical you know, pursuit of Jesus, to make sure that the way we're living our lives is countercultural. And, and, and you cannot do that if you're compromised. Uh, you know, we're looking at a compromised Congress right now. All the skeletons in the closet. We wonder. We wonder why uh, people on our side of the aisle don't speak out against the evil. We we wonder why. How about this one? We wonder why when the evidence is so obvious uh, of corruption. Right? We're seeing that with the Biden family corruption. Uh, they're gazillionaires after they leave office. This happens to so many politicians. They come into office as public servants uh, with, with very little means, and then they leave, and they're multimillionaires. How does this happen when you're a public servant? It's corruption. Why is it that nobody blows the whistle? Why can't we get anybody indicted? Why can't we get anybody put behind bars um, for the corruption? Uh, there's only one answer, because there's people that are compromised. Yeah, they're all in on it. They're all in on it, yeah. and, and everybody has their secrets, the insider trading and all the other things that go on. And the problem is corruption. There, there's nobody that can wave the, 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 the moral high ground flag that says, hey, this is evil. Um, I don't want to say nobody. There's, there are those that are trying. But the point is when the body by and large is corrupted, you're going to have a sick you know, uh, body that's moving towards cor- a corpse. And I think that's where we're at. And when the church is that way, again, the, the, you lose courage, the boldness. You know, the, the scriptures say that the righteous are as bold as a lion. You find certain people that have the willingness to speak out, like, like the Bonhoeffers, because their lives are not compromised, because they love Jesus and because they count the cost. And the problem with the church in Germany was, again, they were largely compromised and the, the voice of moral courage was gone. Uh, and again, we were trying to make the applications to the church in America today. Are we dealing with the same things? Um, is our lack of voice due to our lack of courage, which is actually due to our lack of consecration, which is due to our lack of conviction? Um yeah, and, and is that what we're propagating to the next generation? Theologically, whether we're teaching it explicitly or implicitly, we're telling them, hey, you're saved by grace alone. And 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 what happens next when we go and say, hey, you know what? Just confess with your mouth and get saved. And, oh, you're all Christians now. And then there's no teaching of, hey, but what about your you make sure your fruit i mean that tension point i think sometimes people struggle with it so they don't clarify the rest of it is that what we're teaching the next generation that's what we're producing yeah producing what we teach you know we've we've been a voice on these issues whether it's uh, religious liberty sanctity of marriage life and ironically i invited a uh, a whole bunch of pastors to join me in standing up when we were having our religious liberties trampled. And I wrote a letter, and I shared what we were going to do, and it was actually a Lutheran pastor in the state who was very concerned that we were going to be singing um, modern contemporary choruses and not hymns, because in his mind, you know, these modern contemporary choruses are not really, you know, good forms of 
Christian orthodoxy, you know, and, and so he was going to not show up because of that. And I, I really called him, I challenged him, and I said, our religious liberties are this far from being stripped from us. And you're going, you know, out of doctrinal purity or, or your belief that, that only hymns are a valid form of, you know, worship in the church, that's going to separate you from joining with us to stand on the larger principle of religious liberty, which is being trampled right now. And, and then he kind of came to his senses a little bit, but it was this fear again that if I associate myself with this group and, and I cannot align all of my doctrine perfectly, then for the sake of doctrinal purity, I'm just going to sit out on the sideline. And I, and I think, again, this is some of this theological nitpickiness that keeps us from missing you know, the elephant in the room. We're not saying we, that we don't have theological differences, but what we are saying is when you make your statement of faith, uh, the boiler, you know, boilerplate for participating in anything with anybody else for the sake of the larger good, you might be straining, you know, for gnats uh, and missing the elephant in the room, so to speak. Um, this is what I'm talking about. It's that we, what we believe, our, our statement of faith is so doctrinally pure that, that we're not going to soil it in any way um, by getting involved. You know, I, I, the same thing. I went up to a pastor and tried to get him involved with standing up for the unborn. You know, it was, it was the, the prayer chain, life chain. All you do is you hold a sign that, that says that, that the unborn have value, and, and it's a prayer event. You stand there and pray. <clears throat> The church wouldn't participate uh, because of their view of the church and politics. And I, again, I'm scratching my head going, what is political about this? I'm inviting you to a prayer event for the unborn to say that this needs to stop. This is a moral issue. But again, it's, it's that, well, we believe, uh, and look, go to our website, but we can't lift a finger to show up and pray or stand in unity with the body of Christ to stop this horrific, uh, you know, crime in our land, this injustice. So uh, this is what I'm talking about. It's like we're, we're at the church that has great doctrine, but we don't do anything with it. Well, and so, so the question would be, I would ask would be, well, what is the function of the church then? It's, when they would say, just preach the gospel, right? Just preach the gospel. I think the next chapter talks about that. Yeah. Just preach the gospel, which, <laughs> to which I was like, is that the Great Commission? Right. I, last I checked, the Great Commission is to go make disciples of all nations. Yep. And discipleship means more than just <clears throat> preaching the gospel. Teaching them to obey teaching them everything to obey. that I've commanded. But that there again, we get back teaching them to have a mental ascent. No, mm, teaching right. them to obey. To that means do. there's a lifestyle. There's yeah. there's a actions action step. So let's uh, we're we're out of time as always. But I want to leave with some really good uh, stuff from uh, from Bonhoeffer as it relates to cheap grace. He says cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands. But here's the, the catch, without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. 
What would grace be if it were not cheap? Wow. So we emphasize the inexhaustible nature of of grace from the flowing from uh, the heart of Jesus Christ, and then we're like, wow, if he's got so much of it, let's use it. Let's spend it. It's like it's like the kid that has no value of uh, the cost of that grace and just decides to uh, well, to waste it. That's a great example of you know people inherit billions of dollars from their parents. They never worked. They never no struggled for it. No they never pain. sacrificed yep. for it. And what do they do? They lose it all. Yeah. And this, this is probably his most famous uh, uh, quote from Cheap Grace. He says, Cheap Grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap Grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He says, costly grace, on the other hand, is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price <clears throat> to buy, which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Powerful. Stirs. Yeah. Stir that 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 I think for a man it stirs up that longing and that passion for sacrifice. Yeah. You know that that often doesn't come out, especially when we're tired and weak. But in 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 these moments when you're inspired, you're like, that's who we're created to be to give it, our lives well, it's away. A, it is a passionate response to a passionate response. Yeah. I mean, Jesus Christ gave it all yeah. for me and for you, and, and he did the same thing. Absolutely. Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer gave it all. It wasn't just talk. It wasn't cheap grace for him. So so you think about, yeah. you know, um, salvation being, I'm willing to sell all to purchase the field, right? Yeah. Uh, that uh, uh, my love for Christ is greater than life itself. And so when you find someone that's willing to lay their, literally lay their life on the line, all we're, all we're really doing is following the example of Jesus who already laid his life down for me. And so... When, when we're talking about the spiral, right, uh, silence. of silence um, and, and speaking out and acting becoming costly, uh, the, the lover of Jesus has already counted the cost and the lover of Christ has already said, well, okay, but I might lose my job. Well, what's that compared to what Christ has already done for me, laying down his life for me? Well, I might be canceled. Well, so what? Uh, well, I might lose my life. Well, so be it. Um, that's what it means to follow Christ. That's what it means to be Abraham. And when God says, give me your one and only son, uh, that's what genuine faith looks like. And according to Bonhoeffer, the, the church in Germany at the time was examined and found wanting. Uh, they had a mental ascent faith. They had a statement of, of faith. They had a the creeds and confession kind of faith but what was missing was the works, uh, the the living out, the consecration, the demonstration of that transformation of the heart that uh, that is that happens when someone really encounters Jesus. It leads to a radically different lifestyle, and a lifestyle that's willing to stand up and confront the evils of their day. And so we could argue, even in the church in America today, how real is our faith if it never finds expression on the front lines of the battles that we're experiencing today for truth, for freedom, for marriage, for life, for gender, for all these other issues that are so important. What kind of faith do we have if it's not a faith that shows up 
for the battle. And I will say you have faith, but what what is your faith in if it's not in God? Yeah. And that's the that's the scarier question. Because <laughs> you have faith in something. It wasn't like a va- it's not like you don't have faith. No, everyone's got faith in something. So if it's not that, then what is what is your action tells us your faith is in? Right. Good question. That's a scary question to ask. Good question and a sobering question. Again, Lord, we just pray in our own hearts today that, that you uh, cause us to uh, to be found true and, and real, that our faith is real. Uh, and Lord, may it be found in the way that we love and the way we live our lives and the way that we engage in the challenges that are before us today. And we just pray for everybody watching in our audience today uh, that there's a, a great time, a sobering time to examine your own heart. How real is our faith? How uh, is the expression of our faith something that's genuine coming out of a passion for Jesus? Is it a faith that's real? Can people see the difference between the way we live our lives uh, and the way someone who doesn't know Christ is, is living his or her life? So, Lord, help us to, to, to authentically love you and to authentically make an impact in our day. May it not be said of us what was found true of the German church. May there be an awakening in the church in America. And Lord, we need you desperately. And so we cry out, Lord, help us and revive us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for watching today. Uh, You will not want to miss next week's podcast because we're going to get into a couple more theological errors, at least uh, from Bonhoeffer's perspective, uh, that the church in America is struggling with even today. So we'll look forward to seeing you next Thursday. Mm